Hello, and welcome to what may be officially defined as a podcast, but what I tend to think of as a radio programme that's being narrowcast over the internet. Classifying art forms can be tricky, and it gets trickier still when those art forms are forms of cultural response. Not only do you have to attempt to stick a label on what the art form is, but there's also the business of what it's perceived as being a response to, and whether or not that's what the artist consciously or unconsciously intended. And that in turn raises the question, if this whole process of corralling and categorising cultural responses is so complex, why bother? Why not just let the art forms of all kinds be what they are in their own right, rather than attempt to find the right box to put them in? I'm hoping for answers to these and a few other questions as this third in our series of mediating change discussions is going to peel away some of the surface distractions to look at the anatomy and taxonomy of cultural responses to climate change. Or at least that's the idea. It's a bit early to file this under successful podcasts slash radio programmes exploring aspects of cultural responses to climate change as I've not even introduced our panel. With me are Charlie Cronick, Senior Climate Advisor for Greenpeace UK, Birgit Ahrens, Curator of Contemporary Arts at the Natural History Museum in London, the artist Beth Derbyshire, that's one of the big pluses of being an artist, there's no long title involved, and finally the environment writer and theatre critic Robert Butler. Can we start by by trying to get a sense of of the scale of this task? If If we're looking right across the range of works about climate change, how, how far back does it go? Is this something that only begins with the wider world talking about climate change, Charlie? Most people don't think about art at all. They experience it. They don't try to fit it in a box. They have the, the experience of it and their personal reaction to it. The relationship of artists, or certainly literary artists and, and visual artists, you know, to the environment goes back to cave paintings because they're documenting uh, the world that they're experiencing and and the way that they experience it. And I suppose more formally and academically, the Romantic movements both in Europe and, and North America, transcendentalists, they, they, they loved their environment and they loved talking about the relationship to it. I don't think it was so much about climate change as about the human relationship to the environment that they were in. But aren't we stretching a point slightly here between that which is art which can be seen as a document to refer to in thinking about the changing climate versus an artist who at some level, even if they're not aware of climate change, is dealing with the changes to the climate as they perceive it. I, don't, I guess for me, at the risk of making it a very co- brief conversation, I don't think it matters at all, actually. <laughs> I think that if you worry exclusively... I mean, I have to say this as a punter, since my, what passes for my professional life is, is, is in the world of policy and, and the more technical and rather you know, the drier end of the climate debate. If I'm looking at something that's created by an artist who is in some way moved or engaged with the changing climate, that's not the first thing I think about. And I'd be surprised if there were many people out there who did. Birgit, how do you see it? Well, I suppose working at the Natural History Museum is some idea of um, classification systems, and of which there are many, and also they do coexist. And uh, I suppose we want to be a bit clear about um, what we want to, to classify. I think there are, you can obviously start putting things into categories, but you know, I would always think that you, know, you, can, uh, you can veer from one to the other, and they're not mutually exclusive. I think it would be very good to ask where your question comes from because we've sort of come to think about art as being something that we can classify into um, movements, isn't as we sort of call them, you know, surrealism, modernism, da da da, and so on. I don't really think now that holds true anymore because also we've experienced something also since the 60s, 70s, which I think is quite a markup point actually. Um, so more what we call visual culture. And I think we probably want to use that as an idea of thinking about where climate change fits in. I think we want to think about this much more as a 
as a cultural phenomenon rather than as a sort of art historical term we want to somehow throw over this whole activity which we which see is happening with vigour. So it actually um, helps us chat, rather than actually trying to adapt our existing taxonomy to deal with something like this, mm. it actually helps us challenge our way of thinking not only about climate change but about other types of art as well. Yeah, it would, it would be. And, and, I, and I think we would look into um, this activity a bit more in ter- thematically and we would think about more what, what is tried to, to be achieved with it. Is it something more activist? Is it something much more contemplative? Is it something that can act as a metaphor? Is it something a collaborative venture? I think I would sort of start looking at this whole area with those questions in mind. Beth, I'd you're doing a lot of vigorous nodding during that. <laughs> I'd second that. And um, the thing is, I, I was looking into, the, obviously in preparation for today, I was looking back into some of the work in the 70s, which is certainly in terms of my education as an, as, as an artist, that I remember us kind of looking at that area. And it's very interesting what happened, you know, a lot of those artists leaving the cities, leaving the galleries, and actually wanting to go out and make work in the landscape, and it couldn't be sold. And in a way... Some of that was an expression about the gallery system at the time, but some of that also was about man connecting with nature, which is what I think is, you know, there's definitely a strand of artistic practice that is all about that, and that goes back to to cavemen. And I think it's interesting to look at how people have used the symbol of nature and whether they've used it as a metaphor or even allegorically. So that's why I think when thinking about contemporary practice and contemporary responses I don't know if you have climate change artists I think you have artists that are working with the issues of their time and that they find a channel into this subject their own way in. So although there will be people out there who stick a label on an artist and say they are a climate change artist do you think it would be very hard to find any artist who would go yes that's me? There are certainly artists working with, with issues and many of those artists are working with environmental issues it's not but really in a way, climate change, global warming, whatever you want to call it, is so wide that the topic, you know, perhaps when you first came across it, say, as a practitioner 15, 16 years ago, it had a very different reading. Whereas now, it has, because it's gone from the back of the newspaper to the front of the newspaper, it has all sorts of ways into it, be those, be it social, political. I mean, I can think of a number of artists' works that sort of work with trading commodities, like Amy Bonkin, for example. You know, so there are people are finding ways into it. So rather than perhaps somebody like James Turrell, who's making land art by making that crater, which is a very different practice, or Robert Smithson creating his jetty, or any of those iconic works, you have people looking at it, working with environment in a totally different way it's less useful as a classification it's more useful as a filter the same as you wouldn't talk about i don't know a a paper artist or artist who does Mm. stuff about iceland but you might occasionally want to look at just works about iceland or works that are on paper it's a way of putting things together but it's not useful as saying this is a type of art no and i think what begit was saying is is because if you think about our technology has exploded in the last eight years and so the way that we interpret culture and interpret ideas is has changed radically and so in a way the impact that somebody has by climbing on the roofs of parliament that may be best located on a blog or in the newspapers and there are many different people making in ways into this subject so robert do you also find this climate change artist label somewhat of an awkward one yes i mean i would approach it in a different way in the term theater obviously already has a has an anatomy or a taxonomy it's got a lot of different genres So any playwright working in writing a play that touches on climate change will either be writing a comedy or a tragedy or a farce. So there's already sort of existing genres there. And that affects the way they write the play and the meaning of what they're writing. So a play like uh, The Contingency Plan, Steve Waters' play at the Bush, 
part of the play is set in Westminster and Whitehall, and at one point a drink is spilt over the uh, cabinet minister's trousers and he has to take his trousers off and hang it on the radiator to dry. Well, now we're, we're then drawing on the Whitehall fast, kind of Brian Ricks fast, of people walking around in their underpants and things. So the uh, form of the play is also part of the meaning of the play. I'm just delighted to find in a discussion like this that Brian Ricks's name is coming. It wasn't, wasn't really expected. Charlie, also, as well, I mean, well, to really kick at this label of climate change art, doesn't anything that's labelled as climate change art automatically lose some of its effectiveness? Because it will, it will appeal to those who are already interested in the subject, it will turn off those who are not interested in the subject, so it loses some of its power immediately. I think it loses its power, first of all, by becoming polemic. It can be great polemic, but it loses its power to speak to a broader audience because it already will categorise and, and, and polarise the response to it. Yeah, but I'm not saying it's the artist who may have labelled it this way. It might be the media Ab- who abs- it Absolutely. This way. No, no, I, it doesn't matter who labels it, actually. That will still have the same effect. But, I mean, it's interesting, having worked for the last 10 years or so with a variety of, of not just policy bods, but also with Cape Farewell and, and other artists and people who describe themselves as artists and activists sort of hyphenated simultaneously. It sounds like a, you know, a chimera. It has a divisive effect not just on the viewer, but also on the makers. Because I've met artists who are really profoundly moved by the impacts of climate change and are very, very worried about what the implications of a change in climate are for not just for their own family, but for society at large. But the last thing they want is to be described as a climate change artist because for whatever other reason, they feel quite strongly that it undermines something like the integrity and authenticity of their own work. And who would be we to argue with them? I mean, that's their call. But it's the composite societal impact that interests me. It's what people like me do to try to make, that somehow brings the work into that wider conversation, to the wider political reaction that you have as a viewer, as a voter, as a citizen, as a consumer. Beth, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because just as there will be scientists who will sometimes choose to step beyond just the science and towards activism because they see climate change as a clear and present danger and they want to alert people around the world, there may be artists who choose to go beyond simply being an artist and step towards activism as well. But they risk exactly the kind of negative categorisation Charlie's just described. Yes, but I think that that's fine. I mean, you know, the the thing about this issue is that it is emotional and it's you may, as a say, as an artist or a scientist, have a very particular discipline, but this is something that affects us all. And And it's emotional because it questions our future. And so therefore I think that when people respond to this, they respond to it in very human ways. And I think that's what's really interesting. Yeah, but one of the things in this whole debate that's been going on, whether with these sort of institutions that want to bring artists and scientists together, is that it feels like, first of all, they make a a distinction about what kind of person you are and what box you fit in. And then once you're placed in that box, you then have the opportunity to meet someone who's not in your box. And that's great. uh, But I think if this is the danger of taxonomy, I guess, you know, to use it in a common parlance way. It puts you in a silo, and then you have to climb your way back out of the silo again. Okay, we well, started with the box, and it was Robert. I was just going to say that, um, in a way, I think the idea of anatomy is to show there are many different boxes, and so climate and discussion about climate, which is, um, will percolate all through different artists' lives and the way they think. I mean, impossible not to think about it. So it will um, surface in many different ways, and we can see it in different genres. But isn't there a risk here that we end up with a kind of high-fidelity problem? We're so obsessed with classifying the record collection, we're not actually listening to the music. No, I think... What I think is you don't want people to go and see a work of art and think, because it's about climate or climate change, it's therefore part of a very small group of works. You want to think that it's more like the impact of Darwin 
in the 19th century that it, it impacts right across the range. Yeah, I don't, I'm not. I'm, these idea of boxes, I'm not really happy with. I'm this whole idea of classifying this. I just the. Shall we I mean, did say if, silos if, as well as an silos? I mean, you know, all of this. <laughs> I know. But you know, if, if we take apart this of the idea of what we think climate change art is, then uh, it means it's it's, um, it's looking at systems, isn't it? Because climate change is understanding systems. Uh, it's looking at our relationship to nature. It's looking at our observation of nature. It's then also looking at. Um, what the impact is of climate change, what caused it also in the first place, is looking at energy uses and how we can address that. And so it's all of these, it's a term that needs so, so, so much unpacking that it's really not very helpful to call something climate change art in a way, because you, know, you want to look at all of these different aspects. And, and I think obviously we can, we can trace over our, our cultural evolution, we can look at what our place in nature is. And that's, that's the start, that's the beginning, isn't it? Where do we think we are within the natural environment? And uh, as we have been considering ourselves outside of nature for quite some time, in particular since the 18th century and early 19th century, we are outside of that. that. That's the problem we want to address. What is the perspective we have and what is our position within nature? And, and that's the important question. It's not that, you know. But I agree that um, there has been a long tradition of work about nature, obviously, but this is a new moment, I feel. And so the work, any relationship, any work about nature is dealing with it in a very different way. Uh, you know, Seamus Heaney said that you know, all, all poems now, any reference to nature comes with a sense of nostalgia and loss because of this sort of level of extinction that's going on. So it's a more acute, it's a more acute moment. Beth used the phrase a while about that we're all affected by climate change, but are we all equally effective in drawing attention to it? Are there, are there some art forms, some areas of creativity where, where there, just, there is a much narrower range of response than others? Well, in um, my area, theatre, there's been a, probably only a dozen plays about climate change, which, if you think of you know, how long it's been an issue, 20 years, really, it's, uh, it's amazing because uh, there have been plays that have responded to the credit crunch and uh, you know, those sorts of issues, Enron and things like that. So there's something actually within theatre and the way it's currently presented that I think uh, works against climate change as a subject. But is that just partly maybe a limitation of the medium? You don't get many plays about life underwater, but you get films and poems and things because you can do it there. You can't do it on a stage so easily. Well, yes, but there are such profound philosophical questions are raised by climate change that I can't believe that um, theatre wouldn't want to address it. I mean, they wouldn't want to write a history of the you know, theatre in the 2000s and say, well, where were the plays about climate change? How were you thinking this through? And I don't mean a campaigning way, I mean just how is a society, how are, how are people sitting in an audience and thinking about this and thinking what their values are? One of the things I was sort of thinking might emerge from this is that mm. there's that uh, line from Tony Kushner that as soon as you personalise climate change and, and begin to try and make it intimate, you lose what it's all about. So he was actually trying to say there are things you cannot do in dealing with climate change. There is a continuum to me anyway, of your expression of your response to climate change and your experience of it. As an inhabitant of the modern world, if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, you've been in a generation-long drought. I would suggest that as an experience of climate change. Equally, somebody in, you know, one of the privileged, rich, and the developed countries can make all kinds of consumer choices. That's also an experience, whether they buy a, a Prius or change their light bulbs or don't. All of those things are conscious 
in the developed world's case anyway, a conscious engagement with it. But there's no doubt about it. You have a valid, authentic, individual experience of climate change. And I, and I think it's perverse and kind of and really unhelpful to say, sorry, you can't talk about it just as a personal experience because that doesn't include the multitudes. The multitudes are included whether, you know, Tony Kirshner decides to do it or not. That's not a choice that they get to make. And I think it, there, it's, it is that range of experience that makes it important. That's the range of experience that makes it important for different people in their different boxes, silos, or uh, other you know, categorizations that, to me, makes it important for them to engage with it. It is a massively inert object. If you try to just describe climate change as one big block, and every time you push on it in one place, it just doesn't move. To me, that's why it's important that we experience it and engage with it across a range of activities and not just say, it's got to be big or it's got to be small. Birgit, one thing that seems to be sort of lurking in here that we haven't made too explicit is rather than the artist bringing the climate change to the wider public, the public bringing the climate change to the artwork, the timing, the context coming from the individual, looking at what's already out there and thinking about something again in that context. But I'm also thinking just as a concrete example, something like the ship exhibition that you did at the Natural History Museum 10 years earlier or 10 mm-hmm. years later I imagine that the, there would have been a different reaction to it. Well it was very interesting timing actually uh, the exhibition happened in summer 2006 and a few months before people didn't talk about climate change but all of a sudden energy prices went shooting up and all of a sudden everybody, it was an, on everybody's mind you would turn on the radio and you would, talk, somebody, you would hear somebody talking about climate change and that's when the exhibition happened as well so it was fantastic timing, you couldn't quite have predicted it but it was very, it was in, very interesting times, it was 2006 and you know 2007 was the Stern Report as well so it was a really interesting time for bringing climate change into popular thinking and, and it was also enabled by, by the economic factor of them very clearly and so uh, we had for this exhibition run about 12, 13 weeks or so, we had about over 100,000 visitors who came to, to the museum. And, and obviously the, a museum, Natural History Museum, they become then places which you trust because there's a lot of people in this, particularly in this debate, you don't trust. You know, we've seen that with the East Anglia University debate and so on. You know, whenever you can, you just, you shoot things down to people so you don't want to, you don't want to know. And it's more convenient that actually, you know, you, you find flaws in it. So, but people wanted to generally find out and we had the, the exhibition format. We sort of created a newspaper because, you know, it's got this sense of this is happening now come and get you know inform yourself and people want to people want to know and that trust has to shoot in both directions because the natural yes. the people who run the natural history museum have to trust this is an important enough issue to do it in the first place they've they've yeah. done the pilt down man they don't want to do it again yes. and they've done dinosaurs <laughs> yeah. they're all dead by now so you know yes they had to also understand this is a really important subject and i and i think that also brought the museum i think to rethink what do we actually stand for and it was the first time actually that the national history museum issued a statement on climate change and then the second one was followed that was on biodiversity. So, so it realises that institutions like that can, can play a really important role because they have scientific information. They've got a sort of most of a neutral position within society. People actually come to them for, for, for factual information and, and they have to take that role on because people are quite hungry for information. They want to know. And I think people also want to know what to do and I'm not sure if we could deliver that. Does this apply to an individual artist as well? Are you kind of, you know, you're sensitive to the kind of, you know, the mood of the times and the zeitgeist and a piece of work that you might want to do will go in one direction or another, partly because you're, you're just picking up on the vibe? I think that does happen. I mean, I would like to answer that, but I think you made a really interesting point, which is you said it was the first time the Natural History Museum had made a statement on climate change, mm. and I think that is mm. brilliant. And what you're actually seeing is you're seeing institutions 
all over the country, well, all over the world, making issues on their stance on climate change, on their carbon emissions, mm. and that you would never see them doing that about other mm. subjects. So I think this is where the power of culture can be really interesting. I think that's fascinating. So I think that's a really important point. Yes, I, I think it does. It's happened in my own experience in the sense that I have naturally come to this subject through my practice of 15 years and am now developing current works, which I wouldn't say are about the environmental climate change, but more to do with um, issues that I'm interested at this time and things that I think we need to be thinking about. But that is probably in relation to reading the newspapers or seeing the news. That's where a lot of my work comes from anyway. You would also add the importance of culture. The Natural History Museum realises that it's not just science telling us what our relationship to nature is. It's, it's, a, it's cultural. So that's yeah. where we're back to art yeah. and that's where we're back to climate change art, if you want to. Mm. Yeah. But I, I think there's a really interesting institutional response just up the road at your, is it a sister institution at the Science Museum? Mm. There was a very interesting gallery there that was about the importance of the change in climate and responding to it, which has recently been rebranded as the Shell Climate Change Gallery, which, funnily enough, is now a lot less forthright about the need to respond to climate change. Not just because, I would suggest, not just because of scientific uncertainties that have emerged as a result of ClimateGate, but because of the institutional relationship between Shell, as a sponsor of a cultural institution, and the institution itself. It's just a shell of what it once was. It might, might well be the case. But so there is all these institutions, artistic or pedagogical or, you know, instructive, whatever the role of these institutions are, is that, of course, they're going to cross over the boundaries of climate change. And the other institutions that bring pressure to bear on them are going to have similar effects. Robert, let's go down a different London road and take you to the British Library or, or some even larger cultural repository. If we are talking about taxonomy and anatomy here and you are having to try and shove some of the cultural responses to climate change into this cultural repository how would you begin to categorize it what would be the most useful distinctions and classifications to have uh, well i think a very important one is um, the motive of of the work and the artist because uh, speaking as a critic it's very important always to judge a work on its own terms and you know not not to bring your own values to bear so if you're judging a piece that's essentially a campaigning piece that has very particular objectives whereas if you're judging a piece that say is more educational is asking many more questions and is opening the subject up i mean i imagine with a campaigning piece you want to close the subject down so that it boils down to a, a sentence that people can take home whereas um it should be possible to have a wonderful work that touches on climate change in various ways but you don't leave thinking you have to do anything It was just absorbing. It was just a very fascinating topic. And that's something that I think we really need to go much further towards, is um, revealing how the fascination of this... I mean, many, many of the, the work that's being done and, you know, the ice cores and the tree rings and all these things, I mean, these are things of kind of beauty in them. I think picking probably up what Bobby said, you know, if you have to judge the work on its own terms, OK? So in the film An Inconvenient Truth climate change work, I think that's very clear. That's what it sets out to do. That's what it wants to do. It's got a message. No one's going to debate that, one. No one's going to debate that. So I think that's, you know, so, um, you know, we need maybe some bit of a spectrum here. Um, the activist work by uh, the group Plain Stupid, very clearly activist work, very clearly directed towards climate change, I think. That's also very clear. Staying with the films The Day After Tomorrow, blockbuster film. Is it a climate change film? Maybe. Also blockbuster I'd say this film. bit, yes. So with the director, but that doesn't, of course, yes. mean that it is in the, because it's not accurate in some of its 
But you, you could yeah. also you could also argue. I mean, particularly about the, an inconvenient truth, which is obviously labeled as a film about climate change. It's also a film about technological optimism. It's a film about the belief that the American way of doing politics, where you go and have a town meeting and you explain things to people and you overcome their deficit and understanding, which will somehow lead to a change in behavior, it could be all about. It could be about that as much as about about climate change. But I'm like Berrigan. I'm going to resist this because you can view any object through any lens that you choose. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's going to be one that screams in enormous red letters, I am about climate change. I think that what's really interesting about the negative response to Gore's movie, it's not because people really hate the idea that carbon dioxide has a greenhouse impact in the atmosphere. What they really hate is that it says, they think it says, you're going to have to change the way you live that you're going to have to accept a set of political values you don't particularly like. And that's what they don't like about that movie. And they probably don't like Al Gore, and they don't like his suits, and they don't like his visual effects. But all of those things are wrapped up together. Climate change is a badge for that. And I think that that's, it's a useful one, and it reveals a lot about the conversation that goes on. But to me, it's not actually what the conversation is so about. So you almost sound like you're suggesting that there is more to be lost through attempted classification than there is to be gained, in that... What you can gain is a limited understanding of what you already probably grasped. This is very obviously climate change. This is a bit more peripherally so. What you lose is some of the effectiveness of that art because you can then say, oh, that's a climate change artwork, therefore we don't need to engage with it. Well, I would say that, but I think Beth well, wants to say something. It's also a bit like sort of saying, well, you know, the classic, you know, is it art or isn't it? That's not really an interesting question. It's Is it interesting and is it valid? And I think the thing about activism is that you know, activism is, is brilliant in, in many respects, and people who are art and activists are often making that behaviour because they perhaps want to incite change or, or in affect behaviour, a bit like taking the sentence home. And then I think there's other, other people can bring a different way into work. But I think also going back to the, An Inconvenient Truth, I think it's also a film about conscience, and I think that that's the thing that people find very difficult, and that's one of the things that perhaps people find difficult with... with when they think about, say, climate change art, they're worried that they're going to be kind of... There's almost going to be a wagging finger, where, in mm. fact, if you look at many people working this field, it, it's actually... It's about sort of revealing, hopefully, human insight and some mm. truths in there. A couple of road questions before I open it up to the audience. One that just seems to be hanging there, I ought to ask, does a work of art about climate change need to have anything to do with reducing emissions? Robert? No, I don't think it does. No, I, I mean, I, I think that... The world that I sort of explaining to my children is completely different to the world that I was born into, and climate change is the big reason why it's different. So I, um, I want to hear the great minds, the great writers, ponder this and write about it. That's all I want. I want a you know, deeper, deeper engagement with the subject. Anyone disagree? No, I've got to say climate change. When do we think it started then? We're talking human-induced climate change, anthropogenic climate change. And if we just take the year in which James Watt painted a steam engine, for example, we know which one was the major driver behind industrialization and, 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 uh, and energy uses, 1796. That's the beginning of climate change art, if you want it. All right, this is the, finally the answer to my question right at the beginning. That's you know, just to help you out here. I think that's where we're putting it. You know, because obviously we need to know when does climate change start, and then all of that... That period, we will have made we will have made climate change art. Sure, but there's a difference between when it started and when we realised what we've been doing. Um, well, we realised very soon. And also, surely, between Charlie's century. point as well, that in in our 21st century context, we can go and look at artworks from earlier periods or even things that aren't artworks and consider them to be relevant to climate well, change you know, as well. Okay, well, we take you know when did climate change appear on the UN agenda, 1972? Then we've made made climate change art since then. 
You're pushing yeah. it forward in time. And Joe is or it could go back. to 19... It could, well, I mean, it, it yo-yos. It goes back and forth. You know, you know the, the first climate conference, in, World Climate Conference in 72, didn't look a lot at climate change as it's currently characterized, which is global warming. That started in 88 at the second World Climate Conference. So, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter, frankly, mm-hmm. I would suggest, when you, know, you could you know, get your timeline and stick your pin in it. What, to me, is what's significant, and going back to the question that you just asked, does it, does it have to tell you how to reduce emissions? Uh, no. There are plenty of places you can go to find out how to reduce mm-hmm. emissions. If it has some indirect, nonlinear outcome that leads to a reduction of emissions, hooray. But it would certainly not be on my, you know, kind of report card of whether it was a success or not. Yeah, and presumably it would be legitimate, I'm afraid, to include things that would were telling you why climate change isn't happening, why you don't need to worry. That is a form of climate change art. Can we finally go back to kind of the point, which is that, is there that much point to these boxes, these classifications? You've got something here that's clearly evolving. It's, it's gaining new limbs. It's losing organs. It's very difficult to put something into a particular, uh, you know, phylogenetic pigeonhole, isn't it? If it's still, if it's still evolving in this way, Berg, don't we? Shouldn't we be busy about getting climate change art out there rather than trying to work out what box to put it into? Um, yeah, exactly. I think you know, I put it under head of you know, Obama means climate change, or I think I would probably take more environmental art or ecolo- mm. ecological art, which I think is a wider term. There's lots and lots of work out there that deals specifically with climate change and yeah and, and if that's what it wants and sets out to do then definitely you know you should say well this is you know this is something that wants to tell us talk about climate change but i think there's such a vast amount of um, cultural production going on out there mm. that reflects our time and that's it, re- it will inevitably reflect climate change and it will more or less deal with what the pressing questions are if it wants to drive us to do something activist behavioral whatever then you know it will do so it will declare itself like that i think I agree with much of that, so I won't repeat it. But one thing I would say is that what is clear is that it can have an accumulative impact. So, you know, the more good work that you keep seeing and the more effect that you will hopefully have, because you'll reach more people. And I think what's interesting about it is that so many different cultural practitioners are saying it in different ways, whether they're using newspapers or boats or whatever, or galleries or non-gallery work. And I think that um, that will lead to a collective voice, and that should be encouraged. Robert? Well, um, I think I broadly disagree, and um, I think the more you unpack it, the more you spread the kind of the goodies out on the table, and the more you're able to differentiate what's going on here from what's going on there and value what's um, special about different things. And that's what I, I really think of as anatomizing. It's drawing out the kind of the wonder of each, each thing in, as a separate entity. Uh, the more, instead of limiting, you liberate. Okay, we can at least classify on you as disagreeing. Charlie? I think if you look at it in, in terms of the contemporary context, we are in a deeply utilitarian time. It's the age of austerity. Everything is going to be priced, put in the appropriate bin, and then if we can't afford it, it's going to go. To me, that is going to make it very hard to respond to climate change. Art needs to get out there because of the impact. It, it, it's in danger of the thing that's going to suffer first in the times we're in. And I think it's important that it get out there, regardless of what you call it. Well, actually, one of the ways we did mention categorising a good way to do is by time, and I'm afraid ours is up, so we have to leave it there, hopefully to be filed under successful podcast slash radio programmes exploring aspects of cultural responses to climate change. 
but not for us to say. My thanks to our defiantly indefinable panel of Bergit Arens, Beth Derbyshire, Charlie Chronic, and Robert Butler. That's alphabetical by first name, classification fans. To the audience here with us at the Open University into London, and to you, whoever you are, for deciding this rated as worth listening to. This is one of four specially recorded mediating change discussions around the broader theme of cultural responses to our changing climate. The first is on the history of such responses, the second was on popular culture, and the final one will not unreasonably look to the future and the ways that culture, politics and science interact as we try to anticipate and respond to climate scenarios.